Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. We have two guests with us today, Forrester Principal Analysts Gina Bawalker and Andrew Hogan to discuss UX and design. Welcome both. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So I think it's fair to say we understand that excellent design means good things for customers, but there's been a lot of uh, chatter around not so great design and intentional not great design to entice folks to do things that they wouldn't necessarily want to do. So Andrew, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about this notion of dark patterns, what it is, and the implications of those. Yeah, dark patterns is kind of like the the evil twin of like the the nudge, the behavioral nudge that you've probably heard about or motivational design or um, gamification. It's essentially the idea of tricking people into doing things they didn't want to do mm. and that aren't good for them. Um, and it's sort of been spreading across the world of design. And there seems to be a fine line, though, because you mentioned gamification, but that's different than dark patterns. Like, how how would one understand what is good design versus, quote, unquote, bad design? It's, it's really tricky. It's really tough to know. You have to know what it is that people are trying to do, what they're comfortable with. You have to really understand them. Um, and then you have to sort of look at your own ethical compass and your company's own ethical compass. Um, to understand whether you're actually tricking people into doing things they meant to do or uh, and restricting their choices and maybe not making it clear, um, or whether you're offering them choices and transparency um, that are what they actually want. Can you just give a few examples of what dark patterns are? Yeah, so some things that are very obviously dark are um, what's called confirm shaming, where you often will see like, you know, can you provide us your email to be on the, this, uh, you know, this email list to get promotions and your options are, you know, yes, here's my email or no, I'm not cool. No, I'm lame. <laughs> no, I don't like saving money. And so that's confirm shaming. You're forcing people to say, agree with this statement they don't really agree with. Uh, another example would be um, uh, these sort of fake countdowns mm. where, you know, the sale is ending the prices will, you know, change and drop at this certain time, and then the prices don't actually change. It's a, it's a fake countdown. Um, one really uh, common example is, uh, you know, the, uh, there's only one room left at this price. And in reality, there are many rooms left at this price. So you have this sort of false scarcity. And there's, there's a number of others like that, but you essentially have something that is deceptive that's not real, it doesn't reflect reality, and that it isn't obvious to customers what's going on. With... No disrespect, but perhaps some disrespect to the world of marketing. Tricking people into doing things feels like marketing and product design, right? Do we all really need to eat a thousand potato chips or have they altered food science to make sure that we feel like we need potato chips? Um, then there's the super nefarious dual type of marketing and product design as well, right? Um, so when I read some of this work, I couldn't help but thinking, yeah, you know, Welcome to capitalism. So that's true. But one of the things that's different now is the scale at which it can be done. It's mm. one thing to show a few people uh, or a few thousand people or a few million people an ad about Juul. Um, it's another thing to algorithmically change the way that their experience happens and construct uh, interfaces that are designed to keep them continuously using something and keep them addicted to dopamine hits that will keep them coming back time and time and time again. 
um, we essentially have fewer, uh, uh, we have fewer abilities and fewer abilities to resist now than we did at one point previously. Um, you can look at the work of Neryal, who wrote a book five years ago called Hooked, uh, about how to build habit-forming products. This year, Neryal wrote a book called Indistractable, about how to regain control of your life from those habit-forming products. And that tells you that we may be living in a different time now. Because what is the danger here? The danger here is that you become unable to resist these things. You become unable to resist uh, uh, making choices. You become nudged into directions. You essentially have uh, less power than this company. Um, and from an individual perspective, that will get you to buy. That will get you to repeat buy, potentially. And at some point in the future, when a large scandal shows up, like what Intuit has experienced around TurboTax recently, they're being sued for tricking people into paying to file taxes they shouldn't have had to pay. Um, they're facing customer complaints and demands for refunds. And then longer term, we know that when trust drops from our CX index surveys, when trust drops, loyalty also drops. And so you end up with a loss of trust, which then leads to a loss of loyalty in the future. So we're not talking about an immediate response necessarily. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a longer term play. Yeah, I mean, I think we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast of like the short-term gain or the long game, right? And what you're describing here is the long game, that there are risks or rewards depending on which path you choose to design and how you go about design and whether or not, you know, you're going to be getting complaints or getting sued in the future or building customer loyalty and advocates for your brand. And the rewards are there. I mean, you can see, so one of the things Netflix does is it reminds people their free trial is ending. Few companies actually do that. Most of them just let you pay the next month and then you can call. The transparency of it, it is right. huge, right? Right, right. And they're, they're heralded on online forums for doing this. There are frequently posts that say, you know, wow, I didn't, I didn't expect to get this notification. This is really great. And Netflix knows the trade-offs there. They know how much money they're leaving on the table and they have decided that this is more worth it because they want to think long-term about what they're doing. Is there also an employee retention angle to this? I mean, I'm thinking about our employee experience index and the importance of employees feeling inspired and that that drives engagement. Um, and part of that is believing that the company they work for operates in an ethical manner. So I'm, I'm curious if, you know, by using dark patterns, companies risk actually losing employees. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, employees want to work for a company that reflects their values. They want to work for a company that they can feel good about and tell people that they feel good about. Many of the companies that are, are um, you know, have been highlighted for sort of uh, these these dark patterns and practices, uh, you know, Facebook and others, they, they struggle with employees feeling great about what it is that they're doing and what what's happening there. Um, and I've talked to individuals who have been stuck in these situations, been unable to change something that they thought was unethical, being una unable to change a dark pattern that they thought should, you know, not be in, in place. And you can watch them get emotional mm -hmm. at that moment. You can, this is, you know, potentially one of the worst moments of their career. And they're usually not at the company that we're talking about at that time, which tells you something. Do you have a lot of examples of companies making active good choices? Or do you find in the researcher uncovering a lot of bad decisions? Or bad could, in this case, mean not informed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Not maybe they're so overt 
but that there is a naivete about it too. I mean, we talk a lot about ethics in data science. That's a great example, right? Where there's design happening by people that shouldn't be making those decisions because there aren't systems in place to make those decisions. They're not making them to be evil. They're just making them without the right info. Yeah. I think the number of good decisions probably outweighs the number of bad decisions. Well, that's optimistic. Um, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, you have to look at it and people make, you know, thousands, millions of decisions every day. How many of them would you look at and go, oh, this is deceiving a customer. This is actively trying to hide information from them. This is actively trying to keep them addicted to using something. And the number of decisions that are actually sort of on the evil side, I think, is smaller. Uh, intentionally per, evil. Intentionally evil. Um, uh, I think a, you know, a Princeton study put the number at, at 11% of the top um, shopping sites using dark patterns. Mm. They think that undercounts. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, they're thinking there about things like countdowns and um, false scarcity uh, where there's, there's not actually five shirts Only left. one left, no, yeah. That's that's not true. Yeah. Um, but I, I have, you know, had many conversations with people who said, you know, we were able to stop this negative decision that we explored. We were able to stop this potential dark pattern uh, because we used a set of tactics. We used, uh, you know, we, we showed what it was like for customers interacting with it. We told people about the potential risks that they weren't considering here and, and you know, the potential to appear on, on the front page of a newspaper or in, in the middle of a story. Um, so I think the positive decisions outweigh the negative ones. And I think that's part of why, in general, things get better with technology uh, and they get better with the use of, of technology, even though there are some things we can point to that are worse or frustrating or dark. But are we just at the beginning stages of kind of uncovering dark patterns, but also like incorporating things like AI into experiences where you may not have necessarily as much control or even know the decisions that are being made by the technology that then would be maybe replicating or suggesting or providing an experience that you're not, you're like, oh, wait a second, that's not how I intended it to be. I think that's, I think that's true. I think we are, we are at the point. So for better or worse, most companies uh, are just barely scratching the surface of AI and using AI to improve their business. Mm -hmm. um, so we are at a point now where we could uh, have these discussions. We're having the bias discussions. Let's have right. these design ethics discussions now too, um, because there is a potential for scaling these things. And we have seen many early adopters who have been very successful, Google, Facebook, um, others with, with um, AI that have led to some very negative unintended consequences. Uh, so I think the potential exists that as that scales and as more businesses use them, you'll have more of these problems. Mm -hmm. And to get a little dystopian for a minute, if we have more of those problems, more companies doing them, can you truly be an ethical company in this case? Won't you just essentially get outgunned? Um, if you choose to make good design decisions, very pro-customer decisions, like your Netflix example, if on two, two things happen. One is venture capital money keeps getting pushed into companies who are there to sort of grow super fast, right? Frankly, at any cost, which we've seen a lot. And then, as to your point, more decisions are being made or being made by technology, right, uh, without us even knowing um, to, to more than nudge consumer behavior. How do you make good choices in that situation if you're a company? I think you have to turn it into an advantage, you know, I mean, you, one of the central points of Apple's marketing recently has been that they're on your side. Mm -hmm. You can argue about whether they really are. You can argue about whether their choices fully reflect that. 
but they're turning it into a, a positive asset. Yep. Um, and you can look at that with, you know, the, the, the screen time notifications and the additions of those features. That's a response to dark patterns that tend to keep people using things longer than they intend to and create regret later. Apple recognizes that and other consumer electronics companies also are thinking about these things because it is such an advantage for Apple to be seen as making decisions that are in a consumer's best interest. Again, whether you fully believe Apple or not is a different question, but they're turning into a positive. Well, they're coming from a position of strength also, right? Strong brand affinity there. Netflix is the same, right? Generally, they have a little probably wiggle room because people generally feel positive about those brands. I think a great test will be a newish brand or a brand in an ultra competitive situation. And Netflix may find themselves there, by the way, at some point. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And the thing I would add is that there's a virtuous cycle there, right? Mm -hmm. Like Netflix and Apple, they have equity, but they also tend to make decisions that make people feel like they're probably worth trusting. Mm -hmm. um, and they make decisions within design that sound and feel to customers that they're probably worth trusting. Right. Maybe we should shift our attention to like, okay, what should companies be focusing on? And Gene, I know that you've been doing a lot of work here about digital accessibility and, and that doesn't necessarily get a whole lot of attention or maybe historically has not, but we're seeing, you know, that there's a, there's a risk and a reward there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and just so everyone knows, when we talk about accessibility, what we're talking about is can all of your customers get value mm -hmm. from your product? Yeah. And that includes, for example, customers with disabilities who, if you don't build your digital experiences, if you don't code them in a certain way, if you don't think about certain elements when you design, they won't be able to even access your product and accomplish your goals. Um, and you're right. It hasn't historically been something that a lot of companies have focused on. Um, we are starting to see a shift there, though. And I think it's happening right now for a few different reasons. Um, one is, and this is a bit of the negative side of it, <laughs> um, there is a significant legal risk for not focusing on accessibility, not making sure that you're, you know, including and, you know, not shutting out certain groups of customers. Um, last year, there were over 2,200 web accessibility lawsuits. 48% of retailers have had a lawsuit related to web accessibility. Um, and these are typically initiated by a customer who is blind, who is not able to complete a basic task on that company site. That might be checking out. That might be completing a transaction with your bank, um, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about it is there is nothing in the law that says that websites have to be accessible. Um, the Americans with Disabilities Act was written before the Internet as we know it today existed. Um, but interestingly, when these cases go to court, the courts are consistently ruling that the ADA Title III does apply to websites. Because you can think of them as really an extension of a brick-and-mortar presence, which is what the Americans with Disabilities Act is very clear about, must be accessible. Um, so more companies, I think, are waking up to this. They're seeing that their competitors are facing these legal challenges. Um, they recognize there's cost and also bad press associated with that. Um, and interestingly, the companies that, um, many co of the companies I've been interviewing for this research who have very mature accessibility programs and are starting to realize some of the other benefits I can talk about, it started because of a lawsuit. That mm -hmm. was really the forcing function that got them to wake up and realize that there was this group of customers that they weren't 
effectively able to tap into. And one of the things I think it maybe was in a blog post you mentioned, Mm -hmm. like designing for the average human, right? That's like no way to win a war, right? Uh, No one is average. And so maybe Mm -hmm. thinking about like, how should customer experience professionals, experienced designers, marketers be thinking of their customer base, you know, the sort of scale, like the challenge of scaling something versus creating an experience that is accessible and potentially personalized, like that's a, that's a struggle. It, it is, it is. It's, it's uh, very daunting, I think, to many companies um, because many people assume that, oh, oh, great. Now you're telling me I have to create a unique experience for every customer because every customer has different abilities. Mm-hmm. Every customer comes from a different background, et cetera, so on and so forth. Um, and that's not what this is about at all. So there is this, um, way of designing called inclusive design that is getting a lot of traction at the moment. Um, and the idea is you're not creating a unique experience for everyone, but you're you're recognizing that your customers are different and you need to account for those differences when you design. And the best way to do that is to make sure that as you're going through the design process, you're engaging customers in research at different points, um, that you're making a point of recruiting people who are different from you, right? We often have a tendency to do what's called self-referential design, where the design team designs solutions that may be very elegant and good um, for people who are like them. Right. (laughs) And so this is about actually including these customers who don't fit that definition of the average. Um, You think of kind of the margins of of the bell curve, um, including these groups in the design process so that you can spot and stop um, potential cases of exclusion before they make it into your product. Mm-hmm. And is that uncovering the fact that you actually do have a number of customers who are sort of on the fringes there that maybe companies didn't realize that there are pockets or more than pockets of customers in, in these groups? Absolutely. Um, so when we talk about people with disabilities or the aging population, some of these um, groups that often aren't considered enough when we design, we're talking about very sizable populations of customers. Fifteen um, percent of our global population has a disability. And there's often a misconception that they don't have money to spend. They're mm-hmm. unemployed. You know, they're not my target customer. Um, but they actually do have money to spend. Um, when you uh, start to add in, you know, their friends and family as well who prefer to do business with organizations who don't shut out people with disabilities, we're talking about $8 trillion in annual disposable income. So that is a sizable <laughs> piece of the pie sure. <laughs> to grab if you focus on digital accessibility. You both have talked a little bit about the penalties associated with doing the wrong thing and fines that are starting to get handed to these companies. When you think about the parallel and security, what really forced companies, right, to start designing with security first and security in mind before leashing experiences to the unleashing experiences on the world, GDPR had a huge um, uh, role there, as did, of course, California regulation. Is there anything that you've seen at that scale that's coming to maybe nudge the companies to do the right thing from the get-go versus be reactive? Yeah, so when it comes to accessibility and inclusive design, um, there, to date, at least here in the U.S., there has not been, um, you know, the Department of Justice has not come down and said, (laughs) websites must be accessible, all businesses must do this. Now, we are seeing that in other regions. So in Canada, for example, Mm. um, there's an act called AOTA, and it requires that businesses in Canada 
you know, don't shut out customers by creating inaccessible experiences. Um, and there are deadlines by which companies have to conform. So I work with a lot of the banks in Canada, for example. They're all very focused on this at the moment because I believe by 2021, their experiences, you know, have to essentially work well for this population of customers. Um, so we're seeing that in some areas. Hopefully we'll see that in the U.S. But there are other um, kind of forcing functions. We talked a little bit about employees um, and you know, employees kind of standing up and saying, no, we're not comfortable working for organizations that operate, you know, in unethical manners. Um, we're certainly seeing that with inclusive design. We actually just uh, completed our annual state of design team survey. And one of the most interesting findings in that survey was that there are more companies with accessibility initiatives that are driven by grassroots employee mm -hmm. efforts mm -hmm than by top-down mandates. And I found that fascinating, but I thought, think that's also a really interesting signal that employees are going to be the ones potentially to drive the change here. Are there firms that you can reference here that there's both a kind of bottoms up, like groundswell, but also like the CEO has taken the mantle on this and, you know, this is just this is how we do business. Yeah. So one of the largest banks in the U.S., um, they have a top-down mandate to um, focus on accessibility, but they've also um, seen some really interesting impacts in terms of attracting talent. Um, this company has to happens to be based not in Silicon Valley, in an area of the country where, um, you know, the talent market is, is a little more challenging. And they had um, 30 people on their user experience team before they started their accessibility program. Um, 18 months after starting that program, they had grown to 120 wow. user experience employees. And the head of user experience there attributes a lot of that to this focus that they place on accessibility. Designers want to work for companies that mm -hmm. are doing this. Um, so that's one example. And then Microsoft has actually been one of the pioneers when it comes to inclusive design. Um, CEO Microsoft uh, actually has a child with a disability. Um, and he has really made this a focus, really a strategic focus for the company. Um, and Microsoft has done a lot for the broader community in this space as well. They have an inclusive design toolkit that's very well respected and um, adopted by many organizations. So I often point companies to them as a good as example, example to follow. Yeah. This is so much more promising than I expected it to be from a conversation perspective. <laughs> um, and I think that you two are out on the front lines. You're talking to a lot of companies there and you're surfacing the good and the bad. But what I'm hearing from you both on, on design in general is that many companies, more than I would have thought to be honest, are out there thinking about the right thing and doing the right thing and also trying to create influence for others to do the right thing. Is that fair? I think it's certainly fair from an inclusive design perspective. I think from a dark patterns, nudges sort of perspective, there are fewer toolkits mm -hmm. out there. There's a little bit less, you know, a, a little bit less of a discussion about the ethical or unethical decisions that are being made. Um, and I think that's just the nature of the two topics. Um, but I agree. Every time Gina talks about inclusive design, I get more optimistic. Every conference I go to has an inclusive design track, has really well-attended sessions, um, and leaders in design are pushing out what they're doing around inclusion. Is it that leaders don't think that dark patterns are 
that big of an issue or that it's not that bad of a thing or because it's just sort of a fuzzy line. Right. So I'm just, you know, to your point, like it's a, it's a, there's like a black and white. Yeah. about it. Yeah. Like, well, there's there's a there's a spectrum. There's mm-hmm. a spectrum from, you know, things that are uh, obviously OK to things that are much more questionable. Right. And I think it just becomes really hard to talk about the things that you decided not to do that were unethical. You know, mm-hmm. that's a difficult. Yeah, we tested in, in testing. We we explored making up a product and using it to distract people so that they would then choose the higher priced product. Or we explored not showing uh, as much information about our lower priced product because then people will choose the higher priced one. Right. Um, that's not a decision. That's not a conversation people necessarily want to have publicly. Sure. I mean, there's a halo effect, right, when you're talking about accessibility and inclusive design where certainly there maybe the opposite if you're surfacing some of these uh, scenarios that you've explored. A reverse halo? Yeah, whatever <laughs> whatever that would be. There's times when I feel I've seen public outcry on, on the internet about things like dark patterns. And I think that even consumers don't always know exactly what to make of it. Like, is this just the way that the world works? Mm-hmm. They're getting more information and maybe starting to think, this is just the way that world works. Maybe I need to educate myself better versus expecting true change. I mean, somewhere probably between those two lines is the right answer. But I think the good news is that people are getting smarter about it. I think that's true. And I think they, you know, you have a the ability to call other people out for the things that you're, you're that they're doing that are incorrect, uh, other companies, um, and point those examples out to other consumers who can then maybe change their behaviors. Maybe they won't file with TurboTax next year. Maybe they will tell other people, well, you know what, I'm going to file because it's too hard for me to switch. But you, you know, 18-year-old filing your taxes for the first time, definitely don't choose TurboTax. And that's a major, you know, that's a longer-term issue Mm -hmm. uh, that that Intuit will have to reckon with. Right. Mm -hmm. And how many brands are being transparent about their practices and and kind of holding that as like a mantle of like who they are, putting that on the website in terms of, okay, these are the practices that we abide by when we're designing experiences for our customers. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, in the in the area of inclusive design, a, a common form that takes is many websites have an accessibility statement. Okay. Um, and I have seen quite a few of those where the brand will acknowledge, you know, we're not there yet, but we're actively working to meet the globally recognized web content accessibility guidelines. And here's the list of specific steps we're doing. It also often includes a way for customers to proactively submit feedback to the organization to help. Um, and so I think, you know, that that's one small sure. example of that. Yeah. There, there are also companies now that um, talk about, you know, for example, the, the light phone just came out with light phone two, which is a, you know, uses e-ink instead of, um, you know, traditional screen. Uh, it has fewer pieces of functionality so that instead of using your phone while you're out with people, you're more present. Mm-hmm. You can't surf the internet. You can't check your email. And this phone is $350. For fewer features, <laughs> so there is a there is a luxury sort of component to this, and it, you you become sort of you you can think about design ethics as sort of a luxury thing, which is not necessarily the world that I want to live in. Right. But it's worth thinking about how the the promise of behaving ethically and talking about those decisions um, could lead to higher margin, could lead to um, uh, you know more more sales and a more attractive product. Yeah. I mean, some of this stuff may be what you're referring to in terms of like, is it only available to sort of like an upper echelon of the population? 
you know, if you think about phones, they're now like our primary computing device for, yep. for many people. That's already, you know, $1,000 that you're sinking into it. Even if replacement cycles have extended, that's $1,000 every three years, every, you know, right. two years. Yep. And now you've got $350 in order to spend time with people that you care about uh, in order to remove the distraction of, uh, you know, of your standard phone. And, you know, of course, Apple is trying to respond to that and create ways that, uh, uh, and Android as well, create ways that you would use the phone less. But um, I, I agree, it is a, uh, it's a concerning development when it becomes like a digital sort of well-being becomes kind of a luxury good. There's also some um, interesting signals I'm seeing in the inclusive design space in terms of like groups and roles that are being established at companies. Um, so, for example, th this is happening much more in the UK right now, but there's a lot of banks who are standing up teams focused on vulnerable customer populations. Um, also, groups of customers like people with disabilities who often tend to be shut out by most companies. So you have banks like Monzo, for example, who's asking themselves, how can we um, better help customers that have mental health issues or better help customers who have addictions to gambling. And they've mm -hmm. actually developed features for their mobile app that, for example, help a customer by saying, you know, if I go on a late night binge online and I buy a bunch of products, warn me the next morning before you actually put those purchases through, through. because I have an addiction. And as my bank, you can help me with that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's very interesting. We haven't seen as many companies in the U.S. standing up these vulnerable customer teams yet, but I think that we will. And I think that's a very encouraging sign. It is encouraging. Mm -hmm. So we've covered a pretty broad waterfront here in talking about sort of the good and the bad. Um, but it would be helpful, I think, if, if you both provided just like one thing that you would want leaders to be thinking about and doing in, you know, the next year as we approach 2020 and thinking about experience design, what is the one thing that you want them to take away? I'm going to give you two, uh, even though you asked for one. Sure. Um, there's uh, ethical design as a luxury good uh, and the potential to move up market using ethical design. Uh, and then the second one is the mental health and well-being of the people you're asking to use dark patterns people you're asking to do unethical things for, they generally tend to be very high EQ and they know what's going on and those employees will suffer and you'll struggle to attract the kind of talent you want to attract. Companies are going to have to get better at asking more questions about the experiences they put out in the world. Questions like, who are we leaving out? And what are we going to do about that? And the companies who don't get better at asking these questions are going to have a very difficult time retaining employees, keeping customers, and avoiding the legal risks that come with not reaching everyone in their target markets. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Want to learn more about inclusive design, dark patterns, and the future of experience design? Join Gina, Andrew, and other Forrester analysts and industry leaders at Forrester's CX San Francisco Forum, November 17th and 18th. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit for.com slash CXSF2019. That's for.com slash CXSF2019. Thanks for listening. Thank you.